different series in the physician's gospel, still now in the presence of his disciples, and they still surrounded by a great throng of thousands who had gathered there. Jesus continues this current string of teaching that has included such memorable lines in this chapter as, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, do not fear those who kill the body, but fear him who has authority to cast into hell. And even the hairs of your head are numbered. The one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Fool this night, your soul will be required of you. Do not be anxious about your life. Seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. Wherever your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And from him to whom much was given, from him much will be required. I say to all of that rich teaching, and in some ways I think the denouement, the the grand outcome of all of this, Jesus adds these three paragraphs, addressed first to his disciples and then directly to the crowds. Words that transcend the centuries that separate that day from this and take hold of us here in the hearing of my voice right now. Whether you're one of his true disciples today or you're still just one in the crowd. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask for your spirit to do his searching work, to speak to us to find us where we are, either your disciples or else those still standing off on the fringe, still not yet committed to our Lord Jesus Christ, not yet following him, that he will do a great work in all of us and the work that each and every one of us needs, particularly this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 12, we'll pick up at verse 49, 1249, and read through the end of the chapter. Jesus speaking now, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, 
Make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Some people are born passive. They're born to a life of being blown about by circumstances, finding themselves during their days wherever the winds of life seem to blow them. Sort of directionless, very acquiescent. Jesus was anything but that kind of person. As we are wont to say around Christmas time, he was a man born to die. And somewhere along the way, during his lifetime, Jesus came to that understanding and that conviction about and for himself. His life was on a specific trajectory, a particular and deliberate path. He was going to the cross purposefully, deliberately, and on his own terms. He had set his face like flint for Jerusalem, for Golgotha. For Calvary. I have a baptism to be baptized with, he said, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. It was obviously not the baptism in the Jordan River to which he was, uh, about which he was speaking. That was in the past. It was the baptism of fire. Baptism under the surging current of the rolling waves of hellish wrath that would be poured out on him on the cross that he had in mind. It was the suffering untold and unknown by any other human being before or since or ever again. The suffering for sin, not his own, but of a multitude of men and women and boys and girls combined together in such Blackness and darkness that even the Father in heaven would be compelled to look away from his own beloved Son. He knew that was coming. It was never far from the front of Jesus' mind. And it weighed. And it weighed heavily on him. Last week I got a call from the Western Kentucky regional blood center asking if I would please come and donate. They were critically low in my particular uh, type of blood. So off I went to one of my unfavorite activities. And as I sat in the screening office where they ask you that long list of intensely personal questions and waited for the paperwork to be finished, I let out an involuntary sigh. I'm sorry, the technician said, I'm, I'm working as hard as I can. No, no, I said, that's, that's not the problem. I'm just thinking about what's going to happen in the next room. <laughs> uh, and I was. Uh, it's ridiculous, really, thoroughly. The pinprick involved in donating blood is, is nothing, really. But for me, at that moment, it was Everything. My life at that moment centered on, a, on the prospect of a 16-gauge hypodermic needle. 
And then I thought about what it must have meant for Jesus to anticipate the letting of his own blood, not by a gently and skillfully inserted sterile needle, but by flesh-shredding whips, pressed thorns, driving nails. And that not the worst of it, but the wrath of God poured out on him for sin, not his own. No wonder his distress was so great. It would intensify as the days went on until in the garden the prospect would draw from his brow great drops of sweat like blood. I'm not certain what Jesus means there in verse 49 when he says, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. It may be the fire of judgment that he had in mind. It would not surprise me to find out that he was thinking of the exact same thing there in verse 49 as he was in verse 50 of the cross because that's exactly where that fire was kindled and then broke out into roaring conflagration on the cross where he suffered the purest, distilled, unalloyed, unmitigated, perfectly righteous anger of the judgment of God against sinners like you and I. It's a wonder to me that Jesus didn't just stop right there, just just hitch, catch his breath, or try to suddenly lost in distraction of mind at the very thought of what was coming to him and to which he was going. It's eloquent testimony to Jesus' love for his hearers, I think, both to his disciples and the circle around him and to the crowns that surrounded, that rather than collapsing at that moment, at that prospect, inward in paralyzing horror at the thought of the cross. Instead, he turns to them and he turns to us with words tailored for us who believe and for the unbelievers mingled in who hear these words even if they do not hear them. Following Jesus' own pattern, then, that's how we'll proceed this morning. First, a word to you believers, and then a word to you who have yet to believe in Jesus with your hearts. First, for you who believe in Jesus, who have received him and submitted to him as your Savior and your Lord, Jesus has this word to say. With the cross and his own death now firmly fixed in his mind, he begins by addressing you, believer, with actually with a question. Verse 51. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? Now, if Jesus had not said anything more, and if you had not heard the rest of the passage just a few minutes ago, what might you have said in reply? Do you think that I've come to bring peace on earth? Well, 
Uh, yes. At, le- at least I think so. I know it's been a few months from Christmas, which is good news. That means the next Christmas is even closer. But it's been a few months since Christmas. But didn't we say something? Didn't we hear something? Even from the same gospel of Luke about Jesus come to bring peace on earth? Doesn't the Bible call him the Prince of Peace? Doesn't the prophet, or rather Zechariah, prophesy that he was to guide our feet into the way of peace? Did not Jesus himself say at another time, My peace I give you, and I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. Yes, he did. He said those things. So we're not prepared for the answer Jesus supplies to his own question. Do you think I've come to give peace on earth? No. No, I tell you, but rather division. I thought Jesus' Aaron was peace and love and unity and the like. Well, it is. But in bringing peace to some, a division is created with others. So Jesus can say, I've come to create division. This is what he becomes. The great divider, Jesus is, between men. It must be so for now, because among men there are those who receive him by faith, and there are those who refuse him, who divide himself themselves from him and from those who do believe in him by their unbelief, their refusal to bow the knee to Christ. There is of necessity a division that falls precisely on one side and the other of Christ. And you must find yourself on one side or the other. Theologians sometimes call this the antithesis. That is the separation and opposition between darkness and light, believer and unbeliever, between the church and the world. Jesus is bracing his disciples and us for this hard reality. Not all people are united by the cross. In fact, people are deeply divided by the cross and precisely by the cross. Some some find at the cross salvation and eternal life through faith in the one who was lifted high on that Roman gibbet. Others find only foolishness. Like the Gentiles, the Romans in Jesus' own day, and the very idea that salvation should be found in some obscure Jewish rabbi out on the fringes of the empire, crucified as an afterthought. Or, or scandal, in the case of the Jews, that someone should come and claim to live and then to die as God the Son. Wherever the gospel has gone, throughout all of the history of the world, it has had this effect precisely, this dividing effect. There is no room in the world for indifference to Jesus. One either has him or he hasn't. Where he is preached, he is either received or he is rejected. There's no neutral ground when it comes to Jesus. You're either for him or you're against him. 
This antithesis that Jesus is saying should come as no surprise to us was known to Jesus himself, remember? In his own family? Jesus' own brothers refused to believe in him for a time. Division came even to Mary and Joseph's own home. But isn't that where this division, this antithesis is the most devastatingly painful in our homes. Where the gospel comes to a home, oftentimes it unites that home immediately. And other times it comes and divides the home. How many children in unbelieving homes have in some wonderful way been brought to Jesus only to be met with the opposition and ridicule of their own parents? How many husbands are encountered by Jesus along the way and return home only to be rejected by their own wife? And vice versa. The Apostle Paul remarks in one of his letters that he had suffered the loss of all things for the sake of Christ. An observer of Paul's life remarks, quote, One cannot be sure... But it would have been highly unusual in those days for a Jewish man, Paul's age, to be unmarried. But we encounter him, Paul that is, in his Christian ministry as a single man. Many have supposed that one of the costs of his following Christ was the loss of his wife, who refused to become a Christian and divorced him because he had. And perhaps not only his wife left him, but as Jesus predicted, other members of his household. It's not too much to believe that one reason Paul was so free to conduct an itinerant ministry for the rest of his life was because he had no family left who acknowledged him. Perhaps, too, it is no surprise that it is Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 who speaks to the issue of husbands and wives who have become Christians and are deserted by their spouses because of their newfound faith. At any rate, we know that even biological families have fractured over the gospel. We still see them today. We know of incidents in India, in the Sudan, in Pakistan, in Iraq, in China, in Indonesia. In many places, the persecution takes place in the family. In Egypt, a young man or woman becomes a Christian and the family arranges for his or her disappearance. In Japan, and still more in a Muslim land, a husband or wife announces his or her intention to be baptized and the family immediately closes ranks. Christian, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised if you find yourself divided from even heartbroken by the division that falls between you and those who have not Jesus as their Lord and Savior, even within your own family. Now, don't go looking to create division. Don't be as obnoxious as you possibly can with the gospel and go and effect such divisions in your family. But remember, as the good Bishop J.C. Ryle says, the object of Jesus' first coming was to bring in the gospel, which would lead to strife and divisions. We've no right to be surprised 
if we see this continually fulfilled. We're not to think it strange if the gospel renders asunder families and even estrangement between nearest relations. Jesus is warning us here to expect, both individually and corporately, the gospel to bring about opposition when it is embraced. Truly. Well, that's Jesus' word for you believers. You who believe and who embrace Jesus as your Savior and Lord in this sad world, and for now, your love for Christ will necessarily divide you from those who do not love him and will not have him. But second, Jesus has a word for you here who do not believe, even though you see him, even though you've been in his presence, even in this very sanctuary, are right now, but still refuse to bow the knee to Christ, still refuse to render your life over completely, lock, stock, and barrel to him in faith and in love. Actually, has two words for you, a do and, uh, rather a don't and a do. We'll start with the don't. First, don't miss him. Don't miss Christ. Don't let Jesus stand right in front of you as he is right now in this sanctuary and you fail to recognize him or receive him. You're not able, unable to discern other things. You're a smart person otherwise. You haven't had to live here, for example, in Owensboro very long before you've learned, as all of you have, that when it is unseasonably warm in, on a winter day in Owensboro and a cold front is about to roll through town, it's time to take cover. If you hadn't put that together before, you certainly did in January of 2000. And if you didn't then, you did two Friday nights ago. You've watched the radar enough times. All of you could work for the Weather Channel right now. You know that dark clouds in the west and a sudden cold wind on your face on a warm day in Owensboro in all likelihood means trouble. So don't fail to grasp these winds now blowing across your face and what they mean. They're not just hot air from your preacher's lungs. They are the winds of judgment that is coming. There's coming a day when you will give answer for every deed you've done in the body, whether good or evil. And they are the warm breaths of your Savior calling to you right now, repent. Repent and turn to me. Trust in me and escape the wrath to come. That day as Jesus spoke these words, there were many very religious people who were listening to him, but they were not hearing. They were looking at him, but they weren't seeing him. Not for who he is. 
Any one of them could have discerned what would happen if they had turned to the side and saw a little cloud developing on the horizon. Uh, What would happen as that cloud would meet and eventually rise along the Palestinian hillside and the droplets condense and fall to the ground in the form of rain. Had they felt the wind blowing from the south, any one of them there could have told you in an instant that it's going to be a hot afternoon. But here was the Savior standing right in front of them, right before their very eyes and their ears, and they didn't recognize him, or they wouldn't. They were religious people, they were, but they refused Jesus, and that made them what Jesus called them, hypocrites. Don't you be a hypocrite. Jesus is standing right before you. You see him with the eyes of your heart. You hear him. Don't refuse him. Don't let the same be said of you. Don't miss him. Second, do receive him. Receive him for the forgiveness of your sins. Receive him before the day whose breezes are now starting to blow across your face arrives and with a judgment and wrath, particularly, especially for you who knew of Jesus but didn't know Jesus. Jesus says, verse 57, why not judge for yourselves what's right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him along the way. Before he drag you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and the officer put you in prison, you will never get out of that prison. Never until you have paid the very last penny. Last week we heard Jesus speak of hell in terms of punishment. Now we hear of hell in terms of payment. Every penny for every crime you have committed until the matter is settled. There is coming a trial date. You all have a date in court. Every one of you have a date laid out for you in God's courtroom. You will appear before the judgment seat of Christ and you will give God answer. For some of you, that day will yield immediately in acquittal. For others, it will be a day of condemnation. It will be the first day of an everlasting, unending sentence. Now, which one is it for you? You think, well... I'm not all that bad. You know, come on. I've not been perfect. That's for sure. And I'll grant you that. But, but you think you've really not been that bad. You, you haven't been as bad as other people. So you're, you're quite sure that you'll be okay. At least you're fairly sure that you'll be okay. That the judge is going to let you go. That he's going to grade on a curve. You know, like your grade school teacher did or something like that. Let me ask you this. Have you ever lied? What does that make you? It makes you a liar. 
Have you ever looked at a woman lustfully? What does Jesus say that makes you? Makes you an adulterer. Have you ever taken anything that didn't belong to you? What does that make you? That makes you a thief. Have you ever taken God's name in vain? That makes you a blasphemer. Have you ever broken the Sabbath? That makes you a Sabbath breaker. Now you tell me, you who've blasphemed, you who are liars and adulterers and thieves and and blasphemers, what, what do you think? You tell me. When you appear before the holy God, whose eyes are too pure, he says in his word, even to look on sin, you tell me, what's going to happen when you stand before God the judge? What's he going to say? Well, no big deal. Just, we'll just forget about it. Let's just pass through. What kind of judge would he be? Certainly not a just judge or a righteous one. And it's not going to happen. Without Jesus, if you have not Jesus... Listen, listen to this. If you don't have Jesus, you will pay for your sin. And you will pay every penny for your crimes if you have not Jesus. For every lie, for every single lustful glance, for every sinful thought perceived by God to the penny, to the fraction of a penny. But Jesus has some legal advice for you. And it's free legal advice. Follow it. Settle the matter before you get to trial, before your court date comes. As you go with your accuser to the magistrate, make an effort to settle with them along the way, before you get to trial. You can settle the matter, my friend. You can settle it now. You're guilty. There's no way in the world you're going to pass through God's courtroom into heaven with the sins that you are carrying unless... You settle the matter before you get there. Jesus has died. Jesus has taken the punishment for sin on himself. Jesus has paid the penalty to the penny, to the fraction of the penny. It was wrung from him on the cross. Every ounce, every penny you owe. And that He gives to you if you will but receive it. That's how this matter of your sin gets settled before you find yourself, as you most certainly will, in God's courtroom one day sooner than any of us imagines. Repent of your sin. Leave it behind. And turn to Jesus. Ask him for the forgiveness of those sins for the forgiveness he himself won on the cross when your sin was placed on him. 
and his death paid it all. On the day that he preached the words that we've read this morning, Jesus was in holy distress that the cross was coming. But today, he says, I had a baptism to be baptized with, and how great was my distress until it was accomplished. And it was. It was accomplished there. Jesus went through that baptism of fire precisely to spare you from it. If you will receive him by faith. It was accomplished on the cross when Jesus said those immortal words. It is finished. If you have not already... You settle the matter with him. You settle it today. Amen.